Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. Life is not a puzzle to be solved. It is also, in part, a mystery to be enjoyed. Back at the end of the 1980s, ABC television had asked the quirky movie director David Lynch to direct a television movie that could become a series for broadcast. And he gave them something that was frequently described then and since as both wonderful and strange. It was presented as if it were a soap opera. A lot of people considered it a parody of soap operas. But it was also presented as if it were a murder mystery. From the opening minutes, the supposed mystery was, who killed Laura Palmer? Well, David Lynch and his series co-creator, Mark Frost, wanted to never answer that question in the series. Lynch has said of on-screen mysteries, they typically are not mysteries at all, but instead they are solutions. He didn't want to present a solution. He wanted to present a mystery. Lynch has said the more unknowable the mystery, the more beautiful it is. Now, predictably, after several episodes of this television series and after a first season finale that asked far more questions than it answered, ABC studio executives got frustrated and they demanded that Lynch and Frost provide the solution to the mystery in Twin Peaks. So they complied with that order, and the series mostly died from that point on. Now that's a snapshot to illustrate this principle that we'll examine today from a scriptural vantage point, that life is not a puzzle to be solved. Life is partly a mystery to be enjoyed. I'm going to offer one more quote from Lynch, And we'll compare it to a message from the creation account in Genesis, as well as an observation from Paul in his first letter to the church in Corinth. Lynch said, there's so much mystery when you're a child. When you're a child, something as simple as a tree doesn't make sense. You see it in the distance and it looks small, but as you go closer, it seems to grow. You haven't got a handle on the rules when you're a child. We think we understand the rules when we become adults, but what we really experienced is a narrowing of the imagination. Well, now we go to the Garden of Eden, where the first two human children, Adam and Eve, are examining the trees and other wonders there. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden... You may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For on the day you eat from it, you will surely die. Well, there we are, fellow children. We are in this wondrous, mysterious garden, and we are advised by the creator and lawgiver that we can freely enjoy all the mysteries, but there's one restriction. And what is the one restriction? Basically, we don't know everything. 
Life is not a puzzle to be solved. Life is partly a mystery to be enjoyed. But who of us is naturally comfortable not knowing things, not knowing how things work, not knowing why things happen as they do, not knowing when something is going to happen, not knowing who is going to do something, not even knowing what is going to happen. If you say that you are naturally comfortable with not knowing, I'm going to suggest that that's not really natural. See how easily our enemy used this against us. In Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 5, the serpent said to the woman, Has God really said you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? You certainly will not die. God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God. And the hook was set. If we humans were naturally comfortable with not knowing things, then that trick of the deceiver would not have been so simple, perhaps. But we humans naturally want answers. We want understanding. We want to solve the puzzle. But life is not a puzzle to be solved. Life is, in part, a mystery to be enjoyed. Now, here's what Paul told the Corinthians about this. Remember, Paul lost his sight, and then God literally restored his vision and gave him what I think we would all agree was a greater understanding of God's ways than any of us have. Nevertheless, Paul said, right after the famous love verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, these words, For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see as in a glass, darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love remain, these three, and the greatest of these is love. Now, Paul wasn't naturally comfortable with not knowing, with not understanding mysteries, but Paul was supernaturally comfortable with not knowing and not understanding fully because he had faith, hope, and love. He had faith, for now we see as in a glass darkly, but then face to face. Paul had faith that he would one day be face to face with the creator of everything, and God would reveal all that Paul could possibly need to know and understand. Even here in the land of the dark glass, Paul had faith that limited knowledge and limited understanding was enough. And he had hope. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully. And he had love. I will know fully, just as I also 
have been fully known. That last part is vital, of course. Paul's faith and hope was based on his sure knowledge that God loves him and knows him and wants what is best for him. Paul knew that God loved him so much that he sent Jesus to restore him from being a murderous persecutor of Christ's followers to being a precious child of the creator of the universe. And God gives us that same love. We should let that greatest of all things, that unconditional love, be our assurance to also have faith and hope so that we can supernaturally be comfortable with not knowing and understanding everything. Because whether we let that love advise our faith and our hope or whether we don't, I promise you, we will not know and will not understand everything. Our comfort or our discomfort with that inescapable reality of life on earth is always dependent on our faith, hope, and love in our relationship with God through Jesus. Now, one of the reasons I've been talking about our lack of knowledge and understanding of certain things is that I sought some counsel from some friends out in Utah after my pastor asked if I would give a message in church. Now, one of these friends told me a cute story that I could use as part of a message. Her granddaughter had a pet cockatiel. That's a cute little bird, kind of like a parrot. This particular cockatiel was named Larry. That's Larry Bird, get it? Anyway, there's a heartwarming story about Larry Bird. I might share that some other time. But my other friend gave me a suggestion that I decided would be easy to incorporate into a message. Well, I was wrong. It wouldn't be easy at all. She said, I should explain why, after Jesus cast out demons from a possessed man, he ordered the demons to not reveal who he is. I thought about that. I agreed it would be a message I'd like to hear. But as I thought about it, I realized it was definitely more message I'd like to hear than I'd like to speak because the answer for myself is, I do not know why Jesus did that. So I'm going to present the scriptural passage, which is in the first chapter of the Gospel according to Mark. And I'm going to share some thoughts from some scholars, not me. But remember, even after studying this passage and the scholars, the actual answer to the question why is, I do not know. It remains a mystery to me, and that needs to be okay. Well, here's the passage from Mark chapter 1. Now, after John was taken into custody, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he was going along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will have you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were also in the boat mending nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and went away to follow him. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, 
Jesus entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do you have with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, you're the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. After throwing him into convulsions and crying out with a loud voice, the unclean spirit came out of him. And they were all amazed, so they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately after that, they left the synagogue. They entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was sick with a fever, and they immediately spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she served them. Now when evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and even those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city were gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place, and prayed there for a time. Simon and his companions eagerly searched for him. When they found him, they said, Everyone is looking for you. He said to them, Let's go somewhere else, to towns nearby, so that I may also preach there. This is why I came. And he went into their synagogues, preaching throughout Galilee, and casting out the demons. And a man with leprosy came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling down, saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out with his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned the man and sent him away, saying to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to the priests. But the man went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed in unpopulated areas as they were coming to him from everywhere. So let's look at this passage. John the Baptist had recently baptized Jesus, and John had said, He, Jesus, must increase, and I must decrease. Well, John had aggravated the authorities. He was in prison, and later he was killed. Jesus began the part of his human tenure on earth that we typically call his ministry by going into Galilee. And some of the research I did on this passage came from a great teacher of scriptures from Calvary Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Skip Heitzig. Skip pointed out that Jesus went to Galilee at this time to fulfill what Isaiah had prophesied. It's found in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. 
But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And Jesus recruited Simon Peter and Andrew, as well as James and John. And then Mark records that Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Well, no doubt they were amazed. Let's check out Luke's record of the same teaching that Jesus did in the synagogue. Mark didn't mention what Jesus read to them. But Luke does in chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding region. And he began teaching in their synagogues. Now, here I'm skipping just a little bit. And Jesus stood up to read in the synagogue, and the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where this is written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the people in the synagogue were intently directed at him. And he said to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Boom! Can you even imagine that scene? Now, they didn't have microphones then, but if they did have mics then, what Jesus did in that synagogue would have been the ultimate mic drop in the history of the universe. Here's what Isaiah prophesied, and you just witnessed today in this synagogue the fulfillment of that scripture, Jesus told him. Wow, what a scene that would have been. But of course, having this gospel record of that scene only causes me to have more questions about why Jesus seemed to obscure his identity at this early stage of his ministry on earth, because he clearly left that synagogue crowd knowing who he is. He just told them, Isaiah said, this is coming. Well, that's me, Jesus said. I'm the one he was talking about. But then Mark records, just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out saying, what business do you have with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet, and come out of him. And Mark tells us, when evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill, those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill, and he cast out many demons, and he wouldn't permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. So again, the question, why? Why did Jesus forbid the demons from stating who he is? Well, the best and most obvious possible explanations I've read suggest the reason was Jesus would not have demons be his heralds. And that makes logical sense to me, even though 
I still don't know that's the actual reason. Jesus is, of course, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. These demons were servants of his eternal enemy. So, you demons, Jesus might have been saying, you don't get to be the ones to announce my presence and herald my ministry. Sometimes the simplest answers are the best, so even if that's not the correct or the whole story, since I really don't know better, I'm going to leave that question right there. But there's another, more difficult question in this same passage. It's very sim similar, but it's actually quite different. Look again at the final portion of the passage in Mark chapter 1. A man with leprosy came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling down, saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. And he told the man, See that you say nothing to anyone. Go and show yourself to the priest. Offer your cleansing what Moses commanded as testimony to them. Now consider, why did Jesus tell this leper whom he had healed don't say anything to anyone about what I did for you. Well, part of the answer is likely the consequence that actually happened when the cleansed leper disobeyed Jesus. Because the cleansed man told others, it happened that Jesus became a magnet for people who would seek him out for purely selfish reasons. Jesus doesn't want that. When he recruited his disciples, he told them, follow me. And he later made it clear they would pay a price for following him. He didn't invite them into this name it and claim it kind of relationship with himself. He invited them to get busy working as fishers of men. So even though God is Jehovah Jireh, our provider, we mustn't just go to him for needful things. We should follow his good and perfect will for our lives. And that's not only not easy, that's impossible, but that's God's specialty the impossible. So we had to rely on him. According again to Skip Heitzig in Albuquerque, a second likely reason Jesus commanded the cleansed man to keep it quiet was that the authorities were going to plot to kill Jesus, and Jesus purposed that their schemes against him only come to that horrific fruition in the appropriate time. Now, in addition to getting expert input from Skip Heitzig via his online teachings. I also listened to a podcast called The Bible in a Year featuring Father Mike Schmitz and Jeff Kevins, and they have some interesting ideas on this question. One, of course, they agreed with Skip that it was about timing. But Jeff Kevins said that when he was younger, he half-jokingly imagined Jesus was practicing reverse psychology. That is, tell this healed man, don't say anything, knowing the man would be all the more likely to do so. Well, I reject that explanation, but I think it was humorous. Jeff also points out, when talking about how Jesus wanted to have people recognize him only at the appropriate times, that this principle is common in Scripture. Consider Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every matter under heaven a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Now, some of you are hearing these verses as they were set to music in the song Turn, Turn, Turn by the birds. Getting back to the passage, what benefit is there for the worker 
from that in which he labors. I've often seen the task which God has given the sons of mankind with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart without the possibility that mankind will find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Now, along these same lines, Father Mike Schmitz pointed out that Cardinal Newman once asked this interesting question. How come Jesus didn't just appear to everyone after he rose from the dead? Why did he only appear to his disciples? And Cardinal Newman's answer was that the idea wasn't just so that people could see him. The idea was that people who knew him could see him. People who had a relationship with him could see him because then those people could go and bear witness to others about him. And of course, those of us who are in relationship with Jesus are given the Great Commission as that specific instruction to go and bear witness to him. Even so, even after Jesus told the cleansed man to not tell others what he had done, Jesus also told the cleansed man to go to the priests and follow specifically the law of Moses recorded in Leviticus chapter 14. Now, if anyone suggests to you that Jesus somehow removed and replaced Leviticus, because a lot of modern people resent that book of the Bible more than any other, just know that the ones making such suggestions are opposed to what Jesus actually did. By having the cleansed man go to the priests, Jesus also certainly knew this would draw their attention to him, and the schemes of the authorities would be put into motion. Thus, almost all of this passage that we've studied here is layer upon layer of mystery that can seem even contradictory in our limited minds. It seems like mutually exclusive possibilities, but of course, there's no such thing. It's just beyond my grasp, particularly as I continue, like Paul did when he was here on earth, to see only as in a glass, darkly. And that needs to be okay. Even as we study, even as we diligently seek God's truth, we don't know everything. Be okay with that. Life is not a puzzle to be solved. Life is, in part, a mystery to be enjoyed. Have a blessed day. Core Principles Podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July, L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information. And please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.